Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Athletes. My name is Michael Raziel and I am the host of the show where I get to interview Olympic athletes and hopefuls on their story and path to the games. Today, we have Eli Bremer, an incredible, incredible person. He's a pentathlete. So he rides horses, he hits people with swords, he shoots guns. He is an incredible person. He was so much fun to talk to. He was easily one of the best in the world for a significant period of time. Um, had some very weird things happen during and around the Olympics, which kind of held him back. But his dedication, his ability, and everything that he's done to get to the highest possible spot, spot in his sport was incredible. Um, and we also go over everything that he's doing now now that he is finished, he is helping Olympic athletes, kind of like myself, secure some sponsorship and endorsement deals and get them a couple extra bucks in their pocket for everything that they do um, on the biggest stage. So we'll go over all of that as well. But first, have you ever wanted to launch your own podcast but didn't know how? Luckily for you, I've, I've partnered with launchingpodcasts.com. It is a step-by-step -step video course to easily create your very own podcast. You can grow your brand, grow your audience, grow your relationships, become a thought leader, everything that I've been able to do in a short amount of time, you'll be able to do too. It's this podcast course is incredible. It's soup to nuts. So it's from the, just the first thought of, Hey, I want to start a podcast all the way to, Hey, here's my fourth episode. I hope you guys enjoy this one as well. Um, Rob does an incredible job at walking you through very easily step-by-step step and giving you all the information you'll ever possible need, possibly need. I did this, you know, everything that you're hearing, all of the reasons why I have this and did it is because of this course. So if you could, Go to launchingpodcast.com, use promo code Mike for $50 off. That's launchingpodcast.com, promo code Mike for $50 off. And without further ado, here's Eli. All right, today, special guest Eli Bremer of USA Modern Pentathlon Olympian, born May 31st, 19. 1978 in Hancock, New Hampshire, started competing in pentathlons effectively in high school, if I may use your words, Eli, qualified for 12 senior world championships, uh, an unprecedented amount, may I add, attended the U.S. Air Force Academy and achieved rank of major, MBA from University of Colorado and an MPM from George Washington University, a serial entrepreneur and has helped over 150 Olympians receive support. Eli, thanks for hanging out with us today, man. I appreciate it. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. It, it is all my pleasure. I promise you that. So if you don't mind, take us back to uh, that fateful day, May 31st, 1978. You probably don't remember too much of it, but uh, what was it like growing up in New Hampshire and uh, starting to compete in all well, these sports? So actually, so my, I was born in New Hampshire and my parents moved to Washington, D.C. five days later. Wow, that's a quick and, turnaround. Good for that. Yeah, quick turnaround. And then when I was about three years old, uh, my dad decided to take a job in Colorado and move west. So my parents, uh, I was I had two older brothers, and they said we want to just go do the Western thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, they both of them were Ivy League educated, you know, East Coast families, and they said we just want a different lifestyle. So they picked up, moved out of Colorado, and um, wound up growing up on a twenty-acre ranch just north of the Air Force Academy, and that's that's kind of how I got got interested in uh, military Olympics, all that kind of stuff, because you know here I was. In Colorado Springs, the headquarters of the of the uh, Olympic Committee, mm -hmm. the Olympic Training Center. So, yeah, kind of had a huge influence on my life. I love it. That is incredible. Yeah, that's a five days. I feel like that's a super super quick amount of time to go and move. But uh, more power to your parents. I think that's incredible. And yeah, and the uh, the Western lifestyle maybe a little bit slower, maybe a little bit more relaxed than us East Coasters out here. But uh, mm -hmm. that is fantastic. Kudos to them for doing that and getting you out there. So, what um I guess. First, let's start with this. K-12 
can you explain the modern pentathlon to us just so we have a solid understanding moving forward in this conversation? I can try. That's always hard <laughs> for people. <laughs> the first thing you got to know is we're not triathlon and we're not decathlon. Okay. So got two things uh, out of the way. Thank you. Two things out of the way. Uh, the best way to start about pentathlon is to go through the history. So in the ancient Olympics, the pentathlon was sort of the test of the, the well-rounded warrior. The, so the Greek Olympics from you know, 2,000 years ago. In, uh, in 1896, a Frenchman by the name of Baron Pierre de Coubertin founded the modern Olympics. And he said, I want to come up with a test for uh, the, the ultimate sort of soldier, ultimate athlete, the mind-body athlete that would respect more modern, uh, you know, soldierly type of skills. Uh, and that's why we're called the modern pentathlon, even though we've been around for well over 100 years. And so what, uh, what Cooperton did was he looked at the skills required for an officer in the Napoleonic Wars. And he said, let's, let's look at those skills of sort of the ultimate soldier. So you have to be able to ride a horse. Uh, you have to be able to maybe swim across a river, shoot a gun, use your sword. Uh, and, and of course, running is always good. Mm -hmm. And so that was how the modern pentathlon was created. And uh, it's evolved a bit over time. Uh, and originally, you actually had to be a military officer to compete in the modern pentathlon, even in the Olympics. I think it was 1956, maybe, that that, uh, that ended. And so the pentathlon is a very close tie to not only the United States military, but also to the worldwide militaries. Mm -hmm. And our most famous pentathlete of all time, very few people know this, uh, he was a young lieutenant, had just finished at West Point. And uh, three years later, he competed in the 1912 Olympics. His name was George. And he, um, he shot the wrong target or, 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 or didn't load a bullet. It's unclear what. But he, had a five, he was supposed to have five shots on the target, shot four tens and a miss. And if he had gotten a, a fifth ten and that had been scored, then Lieutenant George Patton would have been the Olympic silver medalist. Ah, I've heard yeah. that name once or twice in my yeah, high school career. Yes. So, uh, so General Patton is probably our most famous alumni from our sport. Very cool. That is an awesome rundown of the sport. Thank you. And a very cool fun fact. I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. That should be, is that a Jeopardy question? If it's not, it should it, be it, one of these. It days. totally should be. Although <laughs> they'd probably just say, what are the events of the pentathlon? Uh, that's <laughs> you know? a good point. That's a and, good point. And you know, so even to today though, I would say probably 30 to 50% of the pentathletes in the Olympics worldwide are in their respective militaries. Really? And yeah, in the United States, uh, all of the, uh, well, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I'm guessing all of the upcoming Olympic team will be in the military. Or mm -hmm. it's, it's been like pretty much at least 50% for uh, the last 20 years. That is fantastic. Yeah, I had yeah. absolutely no idea that it was like that. That's weird that it doesn't get as much coverage um, just for well, that side of it alone. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's one of the unique things about us. Um, so it's, it's really cool. And, and people oftentimes will say, well, do you guys recruit out of like the special ops and the Navy SEALs? And we sort of laugh and say, no, 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 they recruit from us. <laughs> so there's a strong connection there. Mm -hmm. A number of my former teammates are actually now serving in the military and the special ops community. Mm -hmm. And obviously your ties to, uh, you know, with the U.S. Air Force Academy, obviously growing up right near it, as you told us earlier, and then and competing in this. Um, I think that that is very, very interesting. Well-rounded warrior. I really enjoy that. That's a very good, uh, a great term. So what, when I guess was did your your love or your affection start for either all of these sports or the the umbrella that is the pentathlon? 
It actually started around the Olympics. Okay. When I was about five years old, I got on a flight in Colorado Springs. My parents, as I said, had moved out here. And um, my older two brothers were visiting my grandparents in Connecticut for the summer. And my mom and I went out there to go, I guess, pick them up and come back with them. And we sat on an airplane. And uh, I, my mom was in the aisle seat. I took the, the middle seat. And the poor guy sitting in the window seat I uh, was wearing this like athletic warm-up uniform and I started asking him all these questions mm-hmm. about what, you know, what is this? You're in a uniform. You know, I'm a five-year-old boy. Like, yeah. Uniforms are super cool. Mm-hmm. So he had just finished competing in the U S Olympic festival, which was a competition we used to run every summer. It was kind of like a mega national championships mm-hmm. event. Okay. And uh, he had won a couple medals in the Olympic festival and he took out his medals and he showed them to me and he started talking to me about the Olympics and he was a shooter. And I just thought this was the coolest thing ever. And, and he was super nice to me, he talked to me for probably an hour, hour and a half on the flight and told me about the Olympics and how it was, how you represented your country and all this kind of stuff. And at the end of the flight, he gave me a baseball cap that had been given to him at the Olympic festival. Levi's was a sponsor. Mm-hmm. So he gave me this Levi's baseball cap. And for about two years afterwards, if all the pictures of me growing up for the next couple of years have this baseball cap and it gets dirtier and dirtier, of course, that, you know, through time. And I, yeah. don't, I don't know what happened to it, but I'm, I'm pretty mm. sure it like one day just up and crawled into a trash can because mm. you can only imagine, a, you know, how nasty it must have been. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that, that sort of baked into my psyche. The, the next year, I remember watching Mary Lou Retton at the, 2000, or at the 1984 Olympics and seeing her compete. My, my parents lived outside the city. We had a small black and white television and we got to go to a friend's house to watch the Olympics. So it was special to see TV in color. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it's just my parents wanted to sort of be out, out of the city. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, so anyway, so we went over to the friend's house and I'm like, Oh my gosh, red, white, and blue uniform. And I I'd, I'd heard about the Olympics from the shooter. So I grew up dreaming of going to the Olympics. Um, as a kid, I, when I was in elementary school, we went to the Olympic training center for field day and, um, you know, the only, the only problem I had is that as I got into sports, I discovered I had, you know, what most people would say was zero talent whatsoever. So it took me a long time to, mm-hmm. to find, the, find the sport that was right for me. And, and eventually I discovered, um, I discovered that I actually am really good at picking up new activities and mastering them much more so than becoming like a super duper expert at one sport. Mm-hmm. So that's, it, there's a long story of how I got into the pentathlon, but that's, took me quite a few, quite a few iterations, but it all, it all went back to a really nice Olympian talking to a five-year-old on an airplane. Mm-hmm. And I love it. Every single athlete that I've had the opportunity to speak to has a, almost, I don't want to call it a random event, but a, a, a certain occurrence. Like what if your mom or uh, you and your mother were sitting in one row behind, yeah. you, you know what I mean? Just like little tiny things like that, that we can draw this elaborate line and, and get to where we are today. I think that that's incredible. And, and you did make it to the Olympics, but before we do get into that, so, so this is how it started. And then I guess at what point in time, so you said in high school is when you really started to compete in, you know, the, the five events at once. When do you remember your first, I guess, pentathlon and, and, and competing at it and realizing yes. the stream as a young kid? Tell us about that. Well, Again, nothing came easily to me in sports. Mm. It took me three attempts to try out for the worst swim team in Colorado Springs. Congratulations. And thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and my first nickname in sports was the Mad Thrasher because I was able to displace lots of water out of the pool, but I was pretty inefficient at swimming back and forth. Um, and I grew up in sort of the shadow of my two brothers who were great guys, but you know, were much better 
athletes than me. So, and I was a chubby little kid, um, you know, had very, very little traditional athletic talent in most people's eyes. So um, when I was about 13, we'd grown up swimming and riding horses. Uh, my, my mom met a guy who had been on the uh, national team and his wife was an eight-time national champion in pentathlon. They were swimming at the Air Force Academy. And like every good mom, she's like, oh my gosh, my kids would be great at this sport. So he met with, he met with us and he said, I, I really see a lot of talent in the older two, but not, not so much the younger one. So I remember it was uh, 1993. We all piled in this uh, big blue suburban that my parents had and went down to San Antonio and, and you know, it was sort of going to be this big show for my brothers. And then, you know, they were, they're obviously the much better athletes. Uh, and uh, I, I actually won my age group uh, largely because no one else was in it. Uh, well, so semantics that, that but, that's a, that's a footnote. Right. But it's uh but it, I, I loved it. And um, you know, no one, no one probably thought anything of this chubby little 13 year old who showed up with two uh, much more athletic older brothers at the event. And uh, I, I have a, a display case in here in my office and I actually keep that trophy there. There's, there's only a couple trophies I keep, mm-hmm. um, but it's because I, I fell in love with it and, you know, love and passion mean oftentimes a lot more than anything else mm-hmm. when you're, you know, when you're trying to do something special. That's so, incredible. yeah. So it was, it was very underwhelming and it, you know, was, it was a, it was a couple of years later when I, I, uh, my parents told me when I was probably later that year, that they thought I should quit swimming. I was on the swim team. I've been on the swim team for six years, hadn't made states. And they said, you should quit swimming and just focus on piano because you got a lot more talent for the arts than you do for sports. And I, I might've been a bad athlete, but I'm a pretty good negotiator. So I said, uh, how about I quit piano and we save the money from that and I'd like to swim five days a week. So I did that for a little bit and then five days a week turned into 11 times a week because we started morning practices my parents were very quickly regretting allowing me to swim when we had a 5 a.m. practice every day. Um, and then within a couple of years, I kind of grew into my body. And one year I grew up uh, six inches and lost 20 something pounds. And that I said, Hey, I'd, I'd like to pick up running now and see if I could do this pentathlon thing. So um, that's kind of when it really took off for me. I started becoming a much better athlete in high school and, uh, and finished high school. You know, started, I started at age seven on the swim team as the slowest swimmer and the slowest in the slowest lane on the slowest team in town. And by the time I finished high school, I broke every city record in my, in swimming in my events. So it was, you know, it took me, a, it, it, I got there. It just took mm-hmm. me 10 years. Took a little while, but consistent, while. persistent was, pursuit, man. That's all it takes. I was, a, I was just a late bloomer. Yes. I like that. That's, that's a great way to put it. Um, and yeah, as you said, you know, kind of filling into your body and figuring that part out. And then you were able to, um, pick up the rest of these things. As you said, you grew up riding horses, if I'm not mistaken. So a couple of these things came naturally and you were able to um, rock and roll with that. At what point, you know, obviously again, growing up, always wanted to go at what point in your career did national team did actually going to the Olympics become not just a dream, but a, a, a realistic opportunity? Well, that's a good question. In my mind, it was a realistic opportunity when I was a seven-year-old getting turned down okay. for the swim team. Good point. Good point. Um, when I was 13, I don't think my parents thought it was real when they said, <laughs> when they said you should quit sports and focus on piano. Um, you know, when I was graduating high school and I was setting all these records and, and I was a D1 swimming and cross-country recruit, I think people started saying there might be a there there on mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. But then I, I, I made a, a tough choice to go into the Air Force Academy. And people in my sport said, you should go to uh, a civilian school. It's, it's, it's going to be much easier on you. 
and you know you're probably giving up a chance to go to the Olympics if you go to if you go to the Air Force Academy. Uh, I I felt like I could probably do it all if I really tried for it. So I said, no, nope, I want to get a, a, a world class education, and then you know I can do uh, I can do sports while I'm there. So I was on the swim team and fencing team, and so it kind of delayed me for four years, mm-hmm. but it, it it did set me up. It did set me up very well. And then the, the gentleman who my mom met that introduced us to pentathlon, he became one of my great sort of mentors and coaches. And he, mm-hmm. he, he had gone to the Air Force Academy. And so he, uh, he encouraged me. He said, look, go work on your foundational sports. Work on your swimming, running, and fencing. And then, you know, good pentathletes are often in their mid to late 20s or early 30s. He said, you got tons of time after college. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that, you know, when everybody realized I had potential was probably a year after graduating the Academy, I was top three in the country. And now it was like, okay, this, this could be very real. You could actually make the next Olympics. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. I mean, I love that. And that's, I did not know that the, the sport almost is kind of so let's use your word late blooming. I mean, obviously with swimming and with running, many of the athletes are younger, but then you throw in a couple more sports at it together. Um, it sounds like a lot of experience is necessary if everyone is a little bit towards their later 20s and early 30s. Well, what we're learning now, physiologically, we, we used to think uh, women would peak when they're in their late teens for swimming and maybe men in their early 20s. The reality is, as athletes have been able to become professional, we're learning a lot more about human physiology. And you know, Michael Phelps was really great you know, late 20s, early 30s. Dara mm-hmm. Torres was great when she was 40. So we now know that you can actually be really good into your 30s for most people uh, in running and swimming. If you treat your body well, if you act professionally, meaning if you're not trying to uh, hold down an eight-hour-a-day job and train another six hours a day and, and not get good sleep and not have good food. So, um, you know, pentathlon, is, it's when I competed, the, the medalists were all in their 30s. Um, so it, it's, it's that you, you have the opportunity to really be a good runner and swimmer into your late 20s, early 30s. But the technical sports, shooting and fencing and riding, um, those are sports where just years of training help. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a great saying, a friend of mine once said, that nine women pregnant for a month does not produce a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way, you know, if you fence uh, twice a week for five years, you're going to be much better than if you fence, uh, you know, if, if you fence every day for a year kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Absolutely. it takes, it just takes time to mature. No, hundred percent. And that's always been something that I've, um, you know, obviously there are certain people that are outliers, but it does make sense as a whole that, that something like that would, uh, would occur and does make sense. And again, physiologically, biologically, all that stuff. Um, the sciences behind it are definitely, definitely a thing. And so tell us about, so you went to the 2008 Olympics, correct? Yep, that's correct. Tell us, tell us about your time in Beijing and, and what that experience was like and how, how you, you handled yourself um, when you were there. Well, if I, if I may back up, Absolutely. there was a defining moment that happened actually before. I, okay. I, uh, you know, I, was, I had a really good, what we call quad, mm-hmm. you know, the, the four-year Olympics. 2002, I was undefeated, um, I think, in the U.S., won my first national title. In 2003, I made finals at the World Championships. And then in 2004, I broke my foot. Mm. And so I failed to make the Olympics that year, uh, got picked up by NBC, and uh, went over there to work as a sports broadcaster in Athens. And I was about ready to quit, and I thought maybe this is the, sort of the period at the end of my Olympic sentence um, that you know, I, I grew up dreaming of going to the Olympics. 
and uh, and and Andrea Joyce uh, asked me to work with her both at opening and closing ceremonies. And uh, so closing ceremonies, the last piece of the Olympics is that they bring out an exhibition from the next host city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a rough time for me to be at the Olympics. I enjoyed it, but it was really rough to see athletes who I'd competed with and against and beaten and, and watch them walk mm-hmm. onto opening ceremonies field. And I was working with Andrea on the opening ceremonies field. So, and then I did the sports broadcasting for my sports. So I thought, you know, this is rough, but maybe it's time for me to just grow up and, you know, focus on my mm-hmm. career and, and do that. Uh, so anyways, we get to the closing ceremonies and the last piece is that Beijing brings the presentation out, uh, which is this big dragon with dancers on mm-hmm. it. And I, Andrea asked me to go find, I think Michael Phelps and Rulon Gardner and Laura Wilkinson and I knew them all. So I was, I went out to, to, to go find them when this, uh, this exhibition comes out and, and they did the performance and then they said, uh, you know, we call on the young people of the world to gather in Beijing four years from now for the relighting of the Olympic torch. And then they extinguish the torch. And I remember thinking to myself, no, this is not the end of my career. Mm-hmm. And that was when I decided to pursue going back to the Olympics. And I said, I, I will be there. And when we were walking out of closing ceremonies that night, Andrea uh, Joyce turned to me and said, hey, Eli, I've really enjoyed working with you. Uh, I'm going to put in a good word for you to work with me in four years. And I said, that's off the table. I said, I will be an athlete in four years. So, uh, so my opening ceremonies, uh, I qualified a year out from the Olympics, had an amazing four years, was ranked as high as number two in the world, three-time Pan Am uh, champion, and got to opening ceremonies. And uh, Andrea Joyce was there. And so I, I went up to her. And she looked at me and she's like, oh my gosh, Eli, you did it. And I said, I told you I wasn't going to work with mm-hmm. you. So we have a great photo of me and Andrea at the 2008 Olympics. So that's how it kicked off before opening ceremonies even started. Um, you know, it was a really cool, I, I can't begin to tell you what it's like to stand in the tunnel with 500 other U.S. Olympians and hear the USA chant. It is, it is a moment I will never forget in my life. Um, and then to walk out onto the field and I I'd been on the field four years earlier in Athens, but the different feeling when the, the stand comes to his feet and you see, you know, 50,000 light bulbs going off from all these cameras, taking photos of you. So it, it was really, you know, that was a moment that you never forget. Um, it, it was a very emotional experience also because I had a friend who um, was married to a, a volleyball coach. And I, I as we finished the lap, around the field. I saw her in the stand. She had been an athlete at the Olympic training center with me. Um, and she wasn't that far up. So I waved at her. She waved back. And, uh, and then I found out a couple days later that night, her father was there with her and he was killed in a stabbing in Whoa. China. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because that's, I think my experience with the Olympics, there were a lot of weird moments like that, mm-hmm. that you, you know, that you remember, uh, you know, you sort of remember these sort of weird side stories, you know, much more than anything else. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a left turn right there. Um, yeah. that's super unfortunate, of course. I mean, that's, that's awful that that happened to anybody. But, um, but to a friend of yours, especially that's, that's frustrating. Yeah. And, and I'd heard that it was, I, I'd heard about it cause we left the next day for Singapore and I'd heard, you know, that, that the father of, of someone had been stabbed, but then I found out who it was and I was like, Oh my gosh, I remember, 
literally, I remember where we were. We were, we were about, you know, 80% done with our making our lab. And I, I saw her up there and we, you know, I don't know how many times we probably had dinner together. I knew her pretty well uh, from the Olympic training center. And, and then to realize that that was the last time she got to spend with her dad. Uh, so that, that moment was pretty seared in my brain too. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Well, geez, that's super unfortunate. That stinks. And, and obviously, you know, it's been a while now, but still it's never going to, never going to be an easy, yes. effort, uh, easy moment for her. And, and it seems like that's, that's a pretty important moment for you as well. But um, I mean, geez, that's just, that is crazy. So what else? Um, I mean, to, to, you know, just move on, I guess, like what else from the Olympics outside of the actual competition, you know, what else really, really left a mark on you? Obviously the opening ceremonies, I'm assuming closing ceremonies were fantastic. If you were able to go to those, what else around the, I guess the experience of the Olympics, were you able to well, really enjoy that? Yeah. So that was, so I had a, I had an experience, which was very tough for me because the, so I said the next day we went to Singapore mm -hmm. a couple days after that, I was involved in the worst accident in my life. I was on a, on a horse. We had a collision and I wound up with a, um, a concussion and a whiplash mm -hmm. and had to get medevaced up to Beijing. So uh, I, I showed back up in Beijing and the, the folks in Singapore wouldn't even treat me because they said you're an Olympian and you need very aggressive treatment and that can hurt you. We're uncomfortable with this. Mm -hmm. So um, I knew I was, I was in very bad shape because I had to be, I mean, my, uh, my whole uh, shoulders and neck up had to be immobilized and Ooh. then long overnight flight back to Beijing um, and so again, sort of weird moments of emotion with that, because I, I'd, I'd been, um, I was a pretty well-known athlete. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd worked for NBC, NBC loved me. So they were featuring me. I was, a, I was on the front page of NBCOlympics.com for 24 hours in the Olympics. Um, I was writing for USA Today. So I had something like 10,000 people reading my blog. Mm -hmm. I was featured four times in the print edition. And yet here I am sitting there five days before the competition and the medical team wouldn't even clear me to compete. Mm -hmm. uh, so my wife was up there. My wife was a national Coke scholar in college. And one of the perks of that is that they, they've uh, numerous times invited her to come over to the Olympics um, because of her obviously being married to an Olympian yeah. helps. Um, yes, of course. So she was over there and, you know, she knew what had gone on uh, with the accident. But I had about 20 family members coming over too, 20 family and friends. So that was a really big struggle because I didn't want to let people know how hurt I was. And as an athlete, you also, there's nothing you can do about it. The second mm -hmm. you have the injury, it's over. I mean, like you're injured. It doesn't help to dwell on it. So, you know, I struggled with that. And, and how much do I tell people? I didn't tell anyone in the media. You know, I, I waited until I came out of the neck brace, which I think was three to four days before the competition, uh, before I'd even talked to the media. And, and so we hid it from them. Um, but, uh, but by the time the, the, the event came, um, it was very apparent how much damage had happened to my spinal cord. Mm -hmm. uh, I lost all the dexterity in my hands and, and uh, the fine motor skills. So my fencing and shooting that day were just terrible. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, way, way worse. So I, I finished in 22nd place, came in with very high hopes of a medal. I mean, that's why I was featured so mm -hmm. well is we haven't won a medal in the sport, in, you know, since 1964. And so, you know, here I was the, the nephew of a famous, you know, diplomat, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the military, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it was sort of a made for TV story. And, um, you know, and, and it, it was just a tough day. It was a very, very tough day for me. Probably one of the, I, 
you probably won't hear this from any other athlete, but I, I can honestly say the day I competed in the Olympics was one of the worst days of my life. Mm -hmm. Going to the Olympics was an amazing experience, but having that level of disappointment and, um, and it's taken me years to process that ever since, you know, how mm -hmm. do you, how do you do that? Um, you know, seven weeks later, I almost broke the world record at the world cup final, uh, picked up the, the most significant medal in Americans one in 40 years. Uh, so, you know, that helped me sort of process it to say I did what I could and you can't, you can't control the freak accidents. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, it's a tough, that's a tough life lesson to learn. Yeah. Yeah. I you, mean, I you guess can, you control what you control and you, you don't have the other controls. Yeah. I mean, that's all you can do. Um, it's, it sounds yeah. like it was just a serious, as you called it a freak accident. It's just an awful time for it to happen if it happened a week earlier or a week later it's one thing um or a couple weeks earlier a couple weeks later it's another thing but at the same time it is what it is um as you said once it happens it happened and you just yep. try to make it better from there you can't dwell on it you can't do anything else you still competed which i think is incredible on its own um you know i i, I have to assume there were people saying like hey maybe you should not do this right like, did i had to fight to be allowed to compete um yeah. they can actually pull you from the olympics for medical reasons mm -hmm. and you know i i got on the airplane on august 4th 2008 and i remember stepping that was another moment i remember stepping onto the on the flight and thinking to myself I have done 100% of everything I could do to be ready to win a medal. Mm -hmm. uh, I qualified a year earlier by, by blowing out the Pan Am games, just killed everybody there. Uh, so I had 13 months to gear up. And I, I think most people in my sport will tell you no one ever had trained like I trained to prepare for the Olympics. I said, mm -hmm. I, I cannot guarantee I'll be the best athlete at the Olympics, but I can guarantee I'll be in the best shape. Mm -hmm. um, so I invited a, a very good friend of mine, Stefan Gebhardt from Germany, who got fifth at two different Olympics. He came out and moved into my house most of that year. And we just, I mean, we were monsters, absolute monsters at training. And we just fed off of each other and uh, we're just in tremendous shape. So, you know, that, that I look back on and say, that's, I'm very proud of how I prepared for it. Um, and and that's been a tough life lesson learned is that, you know, you have that control and you don't have any other control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, it is what it is. Um, we, we, we take it, we move on. Unfortunately, it kind of sounds like there was, as you said, a few different kind of weird things around uh, the Olympics when you were there, unfortunately, but um, I believe the universe does what the universe does and, and we can just take it and, and run with it as we can. So it sounds like you're able to do that. Um, you know, it's very unfortunate I mean, I guess I want to ask what else around the Olympics, but it seems like that probably would have taken up most of your time and, and most of the experience would have kind of been dampened by that, I have to assume. Yeah, it was, it was tough. As I said, you, you go over with these grand expectations and, um, you know, I, I never even saw it coming. And so mm. it's how do you process the emotions of that? And it took a long time. Uh, it took a really long time. To this day, I, I can't even really go into a whole lot of the details about what I was feeling like. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just a very dark experience. But oh, I, I still look at the whole thing, and I, 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 have, I have just tremendous uh, positive memories. I remember one day uh, running into my good friend, uh, Matt Emmons, who's a gold medalist shooter, mm -hmm. had trained with me at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, and giving him a hard time because um, in 2004, he had won a gold medal and didn't become famous for that. He became famous when he shot the wrong target uh, in his second match and gave up a gold medal. And I was working for NBC producing that. 
And uh, he, this young gal on the Czech Republic team came up and, and told him how proud she was that he had, he had so much dignity and grace with how he handled that. And uh, the next year they had connected at a World Cup and uh, he asked her out on a date. And the year after that, they got married. And so at the 2008 Olympics, his wife was on the Czech team and he was on the U.S. team. And she won the first gold medal of the 2008 Olympics mm -hmm. for any country. A women's air rifle happens the first morning. So I ran into Matt at the, at the dining room at the Olympics. And I said, Matt, you, you know that you're an Olympic gold medalist and you are now the least decorated athlete in your family. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. So, yeah. So I remember that he and I had a call uh, a week or two ago and we were joking about that. Um, so he ended his career with a gold, silver and bronze and his wife has a gold, silver and bronze medal. So they, they did all right. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember that moment. So there were a lot of moments like that that you remember, um, you remember about the Olympics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, at least you could, you're able to take some positives out of it. You're at least, I mean, worst comes to worst, you got some amazing experiences, amazing be either being positive or negative, but you got something and, out of it. And, and most athletes I know, you know, the Olympics are a, a, a blink in time, mm -hmm. but it's the, it's the decades that you spend around it that, that you really have the great memories from. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, like I, I share with you, my friend, Stefan Gebhardt, who, uh, moved into my house and, and trained with me and, and the, you know, getting up in the morning and, and, you know, two of the best athletes in the world, just, just hammering it together. Um, you know, I have a hot tub on my back porch and we train our butts off all day and then we'd sit in the hot tub and we talk about it. And, um, and then David Svoboda from the Czech Republic, he moved in with me in 2011 and we trained together and he won the gold medal in 2012. Um, it became so famous in the Czech Republic. He called me up about a month and a half after the Olympics and said, Eli, can I move back in with you for a couple months because I can't function. He was like the Michael Phelps of the Czech Republic. Uh -huh. So, uh, you know, and so he came out here and we went to hockey games together and we would, uh, you know, he spent Thanksgiving with me and my family. So you form these just incredible friendships. Uh, I think that shocks a lot of people in the Olympics that um, in most sports, you really have a strong bond between the athletes, including athletes from other countries. Mm -hmm. And they become sort of these lifelong friends and I can go to just about any country in Europe and have a place to stay. In fact, I was, I had a call with David Svoboda last week and he said, Eli, it's your turn. You need to come over and stay at my house in Prague. Mm -hmm. So those outside of the actual Olympic games, what I, and I think most other athletes appreciate the most are those tremendous relationships with these incredible people that you form uh, during the process of your, you know, five, 10, 15 years that you're involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're competing against them constantly. Um, and, you know, it's, it's as much it is you versus them, a lot of it sounds like it's you versus you in many of these competitions. So Absolutely. You know, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's everybody can understand what the common goal is and you respect your opponent at that high of a level. I mean, you're some of the most elite athletes in the entire world at um, five different things, essentially. So I think that that's incredible and being able to do all of them at such a high level can definitely, yeah, form those, those bonds and those relationships. So um, I do want to ask another question. So in 2011, you were training um, with uh, the gentleman you spoke of. Was 2012 an option for the Olympics for you? Yeah, I had, um, so I separated from the Air Force uh, really around the 2008 Olympics. It was, mm -hmm. it was sort of involuntary. They were doing a force drawdown. So I actually got, uh, I got, I got removed from the air force and the chief of staff found okay. out that they had an Olympian that was getting moved out. So they put me on special orders to the Olympics, which was, I very much appreciated. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I got out and, um, I, 
I decided to start focusing more on like what I would do after sport because that's mm-hmm. a really tough, that's a tough one. So yeah. I said, okay, I'm going to try to get a little more balance. 2008, I was completely unbalanced and I think that was good. Um, mm-hmm. I had, I, I, I honestly can say, I don't think I ate a piece of food or did a single thing in 13 months before the Olympics that was unproductive for the mm-hmm. Olympics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I changed my approach a little bit, but I, the, the sport formatting also changed. So they went from a slow fire shooting event to a combined running and shooting. And a lot of people knew that uh, shooting was always the more, you know, one, of the, one of the more difficult sports for me, but I was a very dominant runner. And um, when we went to rapid fire shooting, I, I became a very good rapid fire uh, shooting athlete. So I, um, I focused more on my base training and stuff like that. And then uh, when, 20, when 2011 rolled around, um, it was actually the world championships that year. We were in Moscow and David approached me and said, hey, I know that you and Stefan trained well together. Um, and, you know, I was the I was probably the second fastest run swimmer in the world uh, a couple of years earlier. One of the probably all time fastest. So everybody knew that and kind of was like, Hey, can will you, you know, if we work out with you, we can kind of learn from you. So uh, he moved in and that's when I started really putting in my big push for the, uh, for the 2012 Olympics and around late November, early December, I, I started really struggling with my recovery. I couldn't, I, you know, I was working out and mm-hmm. I just didn't feel very good afterwards. Um, and, and that was sort of pervasive as we, that, that's like the, the tough base training. That's when you need to lay down the miles. And, um, I just got very, very fatigued and I couldn't figure out what was going on. I was getting muscular cramping, stuff like this. And, uh, it was, we had our first world cup was in Charlotte. The second one was in uh, Brazil and I was in Brazil and I'm, I'm warming up for the, for the last discipline, which is the run shoot. And my arms like going into a spasm and I, and, and all of a sudden I realized I have a physiological problem. Mm-hmm. So I didn't make the final. I got it. I changed my flight, flew home, saw a doctor and he immediately diagnosed me with mono. So, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> what can you do? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that it takes a long time to get over also. I, I finished out the season. Uh, you know, I, I, I had not had mono. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much in no doubt. I, I, I think I would have made it. Um, but I was, I'd gone from being this great run swimmer to I'm having to rely on my shooting and fencing all of a sudden, which were not my good sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was, that was tough. There were about 15 athletes at the Olympic training center that got mono that year. So, um, there was a, a fairly famous swimmer who I think had it. She and I talked about it afterwards cause she had same symptoms, chronic fatigue, stuff like that. Uh, so, uh, you know, that one, I don't have nearly as many regrets over because it helped me, um, it really helped me transition mm-hmm. and a lot of athletes have, have struggled mightily with depression and stuff like that. I think by going from very lopsided, you know, living, breathing, working, you know, telling my wife, we will sacrifice everything for my athletic dreams to a much more balanced approach. Mm-hmm. Um, it gave me a transition. So I have, I have no bitterness for staying in the sport longer, made you know five more world teams after the Olympics and, um, you know, and it gave me this opportunity to sort of transition out of sport and into professional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, that's very frustrating, uh, especially considering what happened in 2004 and what happened in 2008. At least we have 2008. Again, it wasn't yep. exactly as planned, but hey, how many people get to go once, you know, and not exactly. Not so, I mean, I think yeah. it's incredible you were still able to do that. It's extremely unfortunate. Um, broken foot, freak accident, now mono. Um, you know, it's just, 
that's the way life goes sometimes, man. That's all we can but do. It's also the allure of the Olympics mm-hmm. because there's so much drama around it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, and I, yeah, I, I don't say this in the least bit to complain. It's that I, I, I really enjoyed my entire career and I learned a lot in 2004. And quite frankly, I think if I hadn't broken my foot uh, and had some time to sit down and reflect on things, I might've stayed going in a bad program. I switched programs after that. It, it made me say like, okay, if I'm going to do this again, mm-hmm. I, I have to go really all in. I mm-hmm. can't just try. I yeah. have to do more than try. So, you know, all those experiences, maybe accepting what happened to me at the actual Olympics, I viewed as really positive on my life. Mm-hmm. As, as weird as that sounds. No, no, no. Um, you know, I got a great job with NBC being a broadcaster. Um, you know, I would have loved to go back to the Olympics in 2012, but I'm glad I stuck it out for another four years, even mm-hmm. though... I didn't make the Olympics. It was fun. I got to see more of the world. I got to spend more time with friends. And mm-hmm. I, uh, it was, as I said, it, it really ushered in a new era for me where I got more involved on the professional side, you know, helping athletes get sponsorships all that time. Because if I'd had, if I'd been in the military and getting paid through the military, I wouldn't have forced me to mm-hmm. dual hat and start learning how to make money out of being an athlete. Absolutely. Everything happens for a reason, man. I know it's super cliche, but clearly um, it happened like that for your life. I'm glad, I guess, in a sense that it did. And then uh, you were able to to do that transition almost seamlessly. And that's the next thing I do want to talk about, um, helping out Olympic athletes. I mean, I'm doing something very similar as we already spoke about, but I'd love to help everyone else understand and just uh, get a good understanding of what you're doing and and how you're helping out these athletes and and the way uh, that you're changing some of their lives. Yeah, it's um, it kind of became a passion of mine because I I'm sort of a an entrepreneur at heart, mm-hmm. and uh, my undergrad degree was in economics. Then I got an MBA with Matt Emmons. Matt's the gold medalist shooter I talked about. Uh, so we we were always batting around business ideas together, and uh, my first sort of business concept was uh, using Olympians to do professional training for businesses, like take mm-hmm. the lessons learned from sports and apply mm-hmm. them to mm-hmm. business. I think it was a fantastic idea. We, we launched it after the 2008 Olympics, which was, you know, financial crisis and every company known to man was pulling back mm-hmm. their training budget. Yeah, so yeah, our yeah. timing was atrocious. And so that, um, you know, I, I, as I said, I think it was a really good, I think it was a really good concept. I think someone's going to do that. There's a company in uh, Great Britain called Lane four that does it very well. We kind of benchmarked off of them. They helped us out of it. Um, but as a result of that, I started, you know, I, I'd expanded my athlete network and I realized how many athletes were struggling financially. Um, and I said, I want to put my business skills to use helping them. So I realized that there was a, a gaping opening around business tourism to Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of business tourists were coming out and asking, can we see the Olympic training center? And I, I've been recruited by the Olympic committee to do these like VIP tours and they were charging them $50 and they give me 50 bucks to go do a VIP tour. Um, I'm just super passionate about the Olympics. So I'd get incredible reviews from these companies. And I started talking to, um, the, the planners and they said, well, we'd like to get you every time and we will pay a lot more if we can get you. And it kind of clicked. And I said, Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, the Olympic committee has no idea how to run these tours. So I, I, I knew who the, the really good athletes were who were excited about the training center and stuff. So I jacked up the price to something like $5,000 and I pay the athletes a bunch of money <laughs> to do these tours. Mm-hmm. And then, and then they liked it so much that they said, well, can we do sports demonstrations? I'm like, 
buy anything with enough money. Mm-hmm. So we set up uh, we set up Olympic experiences for business tourists. So we would do, you know, for fifteen hundred dollars, you could watch two Olympic fencers fence each other um, at your event. Uh, for three thousand dollars, we'd bring extra equipment and you could suit up and you could fence them. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, what awesome. a great experience! We yeah, had yeah. Uh, bobsledders. We towed this big bobsled over to the you know to the resorts in town, and uh, and he'd stand by it in his little speed suit, and, and uh, very popular with the women. Um, and, I wonder why. And, yeah, and uh, you know, and they'd sign autographs and stuff, and that actually kind of blew up in a in a very good way, and we started doing a fair amount of business. Um, I had about probably 10 to 15 athletes who were making more money out of my business than they were from their athlete stipends. Mm-hmm. Uh, that came crashing to an end when I spoke out against uh, the, 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 at the time, CEO of the Olympic Committee who had mm-hmm. a relationship with the main resort in town. Uh, I got a call from the, from the company saying, we've been told to end our relationship with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so that was, that was disappointing. Uh, however, at the same time, it was almost exactly the same time. I, I wound up, I've been sponsored by Shackley Corporation, their supplement company. I just had a product sponsorship with them and I was trying to line up my support for the next Olympics and I needed to raise probably 10,000 bucks or something to pay. Mm-hmm. You know, I graphed out my paying my bills. My wife was working full time supporting me. Uh, so I, I pitched Shackley on making, you know, like, Hey, can you give me some money? I've been a good soldier for you. And one thing led to another and they said, you know, we're, we're really not happy with our sports sponsorship program. They've been sponsoring these, uh, the sports federations or what we call national governing mm-hmm. bodies or mm-hmm. NGBs. And, uh, the, the NGB they had a relationship with was drastically hiking the price. And so they were planning on getting out of sports sponsorships. So I met with the chief marketing officer and he said, look, I'm not going to go pay you to do this because we're looking at just divesting from sports to begin with because we're just frustrated with the Olympics. And I said, what do you want? He said, well, I want direct relationships with athletes. You know, our brand wants to validate our products with Olympic athletes. And I said, well, shoot, you don't need to go to a sports federation for that. I can just walk around the Olympic training center Mm -hmm. and and do that. And so, uh, so they, um, they offered me a job, uh, you know, just a very small retainer, it was enough to, to get me through the Olympics mm-hmm. and uh, gave me a performance incentive. And, and he was like, Hey, I, I don't think you can pull this off, but if you can, it's going to be great. Uh, so they gave me a nice performance incentive. And that first year um, I recruited 17 Olympians into my program and, um, and we won, I think seven Olympic medals. I, I sort wow. of jokingly said it was Eli's friends from the Olympic training center. Uh-huh. Um, and it was really cool because I just went around and I'm like, Hey, you know, Corey Cogdell, do you want to, you know, do you want to be uh, sponsored? And uh, you had a lot of really great friends there who said, yeah, this is really cool. And if you like the company, then we'll like the company. Um, so I'd always had in my mind this idea of uh, if you put together all the have not Olympians, you know, nothing against Michael Phelps. I've known Michael mm-hmm. for years. I actually mm-hmm. shot his first AT&T commercial with him in 2004. That's awesome. Um, so uh, I think Michael's fantastic. I think what he's done for the Olympics is fantastic. There's really a few athletes like that uh, who can get these major sports agents. And I thought, you know what? My value as a pentathlete who didn't win a medal is, is very low, but it's not, it's not zero. Mm-hmm. But what if you could aggregate these athletes together? Mm-hmm. And, and what if you didn't have one of me? What if you had 30 or 50 or 100? Now you can actually start competing for major sponsors, mm-hmm. but you have to band together. 
And it, it was too small for, you know, for uh, uh, Octagon or IMG to look at, you know, because they're, they're really looking at the Michael Phelps and the Katie Ledeckis and people like that. Um, but all of a sudden I said, wow, I've got a billion dollar company that's willing to pay me to stand up this program. And so I, I, I pitched this to the chief marketing officer and he said, I think this is brilliant. You know, I have no problem with this if you want to go out and sort of resell these athletes. So kind of had this in the back of my mind. Um, and we started growing the program by, by 2014. I had about 10% of the winter Olympic team in my program. Uh, we're trying to find some outside sponsors, but it was really hard to get sponsors to sort of understand this. Also, in 2012 and 2014, athletes were really loath to use their personal social media accounts to support sponsors. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. That really started switching as we got more younger athletes in the system who grew up on social media. So by 2016, the, the tables had really turned. I had 30, uh, I think 38 athletes in the Olympics. We took home 13 gold medals, um, and, and they were very social media savvy. So we worked with about five or six brands, um, and we put – you know, all in all, I think I've probably put about $2 million in various athletes pockets now That's over incredible. the last like six years. Yeah. Just doing these small aggregated sponsorships. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and so once we have them in our system, um, you know, they get signed on a, on a base contract with one company, but now we, you know, we have their automatic uh, deposit for, uh, for the bank account. We have photos and, you know, we have all their marketing collateral. So we can go out and find other brands that want to affiliate with 30, 50, 70. I, I had a brand a couple weeks ago that said, Hey, I want 150, um, in the next Olympics and they're willing to pay not tons per athlete, but it's a, it's a, it's a cool product that, uh, the athletes who like it are going to like it and, mm -hmm. and we can, we can put that many athletes on contracts. So instead of having one athlete and doing a TV commercial, you know, they're looking at social media presence and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm really proud of that and that we are moving the needle for these athletes. Most people think Olympians make a lot of money. The, the reality of it is probably 80 to 90% live below the poverty line. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if I can get, uh, if I can get an athlete, you know, seven to $10,000, uh, it sounds you know, people think, oh, you know, they're, they're driving around BMWs and stuff. No, no, that's the administrators mm -hmm. who make all the money. Mm -hmm. The athletes are driving around, you know, old cars. They're staying at people on people's couches and stuff. So, you know, it, it's not tons, but if I can, if I can cobble together seven to $10,000 for an athlete, it means that they can have a great Olympic experience because they're mm -hmm. not worried about where they're going to pay their credit card bill when they get home. You mm -hmm. know, we can give them maybe two months of runway. They can go enjoy the Olympics. And I believe that I think the Olympic committee has this all wrong. They, you know, they have no problem with sending impoverished athletes to the Olympics. I think an athlete who's not worried about how they're going to pay their credit card bill will perform better mm -hmm. at the Olympics and they're going to have Absolutely. a better time. They're going to have less depression when they leave the Olympics. I completely so, agree. So, and it's cool to see companies now starting to buy into that vision and saying, you know what, maybe just throwing a whole bunch of money at a, at a corporation who doesn't, give the money to the athletes is not mm -hmm. the right way to go. Absolutely. No, I a hundred percent agree. As I said, I mean, we're pretty much doing the same thing um, just in different parts of different parts of the country. I think it's incredible. And I think what you're doing for the athletes is incredible because um, no 80 to 90% living below the poverty line, five to $7,000. I mean, that's a couple rent checks. It's, Let's be it's, honest. It's like huge. that's a lot. Um, you know, so I think that that's, that's fantastic. And, and the more that you can help, I mean, my literal goal is to help every single one that needs it. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, that 150 number you're at, I mean, hopefully we can band together and do a thousand or, or 15, thousand however it needs to happen yep. but uh you know i think that and, that's incredible uh which and, and 
I, I wish I could say uh, we were anywhere near the, the limit, but the reality of it is there could be five people doing what I'm doing and you're doing, and mm -hmm. we wouldn't run into any sponsor conflicts yeah, because exactly. I actually think there's a lot of these companies that don't realize like, wow, we could tap into these athletes. And there's some of the best stories come from athletes mm -hmm. who have been discarded by the system. I just spent this last weekend with Tyler George, who uh, is a member of the Miracle, Miracle on Ice team. Miracle. I started, yep, I started sponsoring those guys back before the 2014 Olympics. And we, you know, people were saying, why would you sponsor curling? What a dud of a sport. Well, let me tell you the ROI for a company that signs the surprise gold medalist at the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So it's actually, I, I don't ask companies to do charity. I ask them to do good business because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Shackley had sponsored um, Tyler George and, uh, and, and John Landsteiner, his teammate. And we got so much ROI for that because, you know, it was huge. It was massive. And, uh, and so, you know, those guys have a huge affinity to the brand. They love helping us out. Um, they have so much appreciation because we were there before they were big. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so it's good business. It's really good business to, to sponsor those athletes because I mean, I don't know, Katie Ledecky, I, I hear she's a great gal, but she's going to win probably a lot of medals. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can bet big money on her and you're going to get a moderate ROI. Um, but you know, when you bet on, when you bet on men's curling and they win, mm -hmm. you get a big ROI. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, but, but companies just haven't had the chance to, you know, how do you get 50, 100, 200 athletes out there so that you happen to, to have a great relationship with that gal who's the surprise story of the Olympics? Absolutely. I love it, man. That is, that is absolutely fantastic, Eli. This has been such a great conversation, obviously, learning about your life, um, learning about what you're doing afterwards. And what are, I guess, what are some of your goals with the upcoming 2020 Games um, and, and helping some of these well, athletes around? Um, I, I expect to be working probably on my prime contract with, with probably around 50 athletes and maybe mm -hmm. on some peripheral with, with 100 to 150, uh, which I think is super cool. Um, I've also got my hands in the, in the pot of governance at the, at the Olympic Committee. If you, if you Google me, you'll, you'll find out very quickly I'm not well liked by the corporate U.S. Olympic Committee. I might have um, found that out, yes, once or twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I'm very well politically connected, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm actually heading to Washington, D.C. next week to meet with some senators about reforming the governance. Uh, you know, th this organization makes a quarter billion dollars a year and most of the athletes are impoverished. Um, so, I, and I don't think that's good business. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at major sports leagues, it's usually a 50-50 split. You need half to go to running it and half should go to the athletes. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I jokingly say I'm, I'm advocating to put myself out of business, but that's fine. I've got lots of other businesses. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be fine. Um, you know, I'm, I'm starting, the other area I'm starting to get really interested in is uh, at a scientific level, how genetics play a role in different athletes. because. Mm -hmm. I, we started the conversation and I said I was the last person that anybody thought would mm -hmm. be an athlete. Mm -hmm. But if you look at my genetic profile, it was all baked in there from the beginning. I was, I was a very misunderstood athlete. Um, you know, my, my original swim team had a belief that every athlete's a distance swimmer. I profile like an elite mid-distance athlete, which is, which is what I was. And so I'm um, working on putting together some financing on this. I've had a whole bunch of Olympians who have offered me to participate in a research study to, to see if we can find out what does a world-class sprinter look like versus a mid-distance athlete versus a distance. What about a, a shooter, 
Um, I was talking to Matt Emmons the other day, and he said uh, he used to say everybody could win a gold medal in shooting, and he said, I just don't believe that anymore. He said, I, am, I was more talented. I chose a sport I was more talented in. So I'm, I'm, very, I'm getting very interested in that, and we're going to be working. I can't get too much into what we're actually doing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but we're going to be working with a number of athletes on um, how we can evaluate their genetics and figure out how to enhance their training, uh, their diet, uh, their recovery based on what we're seeing in their genetics. Very so, interesting. Jeez. Yeah. What, are yeah, you working so, with any notable universities, I'm assuming? I, I, I can't say yet who the team is, but it's, okay. it's, a, it's a pretty jaw-dropping team. Awesome. Um, very and, excited to listen then. Yeah, and we're, um, we're, we're very excited about that. A lot of athletes, as I said, have, have offered us that they will participate with the idea of helping the next generation of athletes. Uh, eventually, uh, if, if this really takes off, I think, um, I think in the next five or 10 years, whether it's my group or some other group, uh, we're going to, we're going to unlock a lot of genetic secrets. And, you know, my son's four years old. I'd love to be able to tell him at the start of his career, here's some, here's some, here's some stuff you're going to be good at mm-hmm. because, you know, like when I was 13, I was so bad. Even my parents didn't believe in me, but I was just in the wrong disciplines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how many kids fail to reach their dreams? How many kids have my story of meeting an Olympian and having a dream and, and their dreams get shattered or never realized, not because they didn't have the genetic talent, but because they didn't know where their talent was. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're in cross country running and, and what they really should be doing is uh, playing table tennis or, mm-hmm. or shooting or something like that. So how cool would it be if we can get young people uh, excited and into disciplines and sports that they have uh, that they have the the potential to do really well at. Mm-hmm. Of um, course, and and another just a point to that. It's more fun to win, right? Like if you're constantly getting yep. huge losses, as you were able to persevere, um, not as many people are like well, that. But you, you're always going to face losses. Of but course, of course. Thing, but I was facing I was facing losses at the I was facing losses at the you know at the world level. Uh-huh. Um, when I was in high school, I was facing losses at the city level. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to lose, you may as well of lose course. at a higher level. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And, and you know, I, the reason I, uh, I only swam for two years in college is my college coach had a belief that everyone was a distance swimmer. And, you know, he was an Olympian in distance. Great guy. Great guy. And we didn't know this was 18 mm-hmm. years ago, yeah. 20 years ago. We didn't know that that much back then. Uh, so I blew out my shoulders because I was training in the wrong disciplines. So, uh, your injury rate goes up if you're training stuff that you're not good at, um, you know, your incentive to stay involved. We have a, we have an obesity epidemic in the United States. So I look at that and I say, how great would it be again, if we can vector young people toward activities they really love? Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, you've got kids that get involved as I said with cross country that should be doing something different. You got kids that are involved in shooting that maybe they're, they're just a, they've got a world-class genetics for cross country, but they'll never be able to hit the target. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they grow up thinking they're a failure because they're not using their talent. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, that's, that's incredible. Um, I'm very excited to, to keep my eyes peeled and see who you are working with. Cause that sounds very interesting and it sounds like a very promising study as well. And it, and it makes sense, you know, for, for as long, as much as we know now, why can't we know more? Right. Yeah, I was talking to a, a very famous gold medalist a couple weeks ago about this um, household name, and I uh, can't say who it is because he's offered he's offered to help us with, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. with his, submitting his genetic uh, profile to us, um, and and he actually was a very poor athlete in college, mm-hmm. 
and grew up to become one of the most famous Olympians. Um, and, and he said, Eli, this, I wish I had known in college what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So many athletes, again, people have this idea that these Olympians grow up as superhumans, right? And, oh, you must have been, you know, five years old, you knew you were going to the Olympics. Uh, the reality of it is most of us just, just blunder our way, you know, with some blind luck into success. I mean, it was a raw chance meeting that my mom met this guy who was a pentathlete. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, I'm really, really good at mid distance, which is basically what we do. And I'm really good at replicating uh, success because I have uh, some very, very good genes to be able to do extensive amounts of training. So just because, so I was misidentified as a distance athlete early, but really what I'm good at is doing high volume of mid distance training, which is perfect for my sport. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely perfect. You can't ask for a better setup. So, incredible. so again, you can tell I'm, I'm excited about that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think, I think the, uh, the Olympics are heading into a better place. Um, I think we'll see some shakeups at the Olympic Committee over the next one to two years, as uh, in in the United States, where we're we're likely to see a new a new law that governs us, and I think that'll be good. I think we're going to see some breakthroughs on genetics. Um, all, all of this culminates with the fact that we're hosting the LA Olympics in mm -hmm. 2028, and you know I just love to see Team USA perform amazing in front of the home crowd and just show what we can do as a nation. I love it. I love it. I think it'd be fantastic. And I, I love the work you're doing all around. I think it's incredible. So Eli, there was a couple other things that I wanted to get to, but this was, I think the perfect, uh, perfect conversation. Thank you so much for your time. One more time, Eli Bremer, USA modern pentathlon, Olympian entrepreneur, helping 150 athletes, trying to help even more kids that are growing up now. Uh, Eli, thank you so much for your time today. All right. Glad to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Our Athletes with Eli Bremer. As I said, he is such a cool dude, such an incredible person. I mean, just on the sport-wise, everything he did to train and, and get to where he got to and all the awful injuries along the way to now what he's doing to help these Olympic athletes make an extra couple bucks. Some simple, simple things that he's been able to do to help them is, uh, you know, someone I'm definitely following in his footsteps and hopefully will be able to become just as, if not even more successful one day. Um, in what he is doing. So thank you so much for listening. If you don't mind, follow Eli on all of his socials and his website. Everything will be in the show notes. Add a little bit of information about what he's doing now with the athletes as well. Uh, make sure to follow us at ourathletes.us on Instagram, at ourathletesusa on Twitter. Check out the website, www.ourathletes.us. Michael at ourathletes.us if you want to, you know, maybe give me a little feedback. Tell me something I could do a little bit better. I always, always, always appreciate that. And if you could please give a great review, subscribe, share, I don't know, do anything that you need to do to get this out there a little bit more specifically on iTunes, that would be greatly greatly appreciated itunes apple podcast whatever get that out there a little bit more um those five stars it would be sincerely appreciated give us some comments some feedback anything that you can we would really love it so thank you so much and i hope you have a wonderful day